may we hear your voice alone. I pray that, Lord, your spirit will speak and that we will respond in faith. May the truth of your word find lodging deep within our souls and radically transform our lives for your glory so that we, with our one tongue, can sing as with a thousand your praises forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. He was a 27-year-old experienced mountaineer who at one time in his life had been part of the Mountain Rescue Squad in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It was a beautiful May day in 2003, and he decided to go out on a, a climb in the Blue John Canyon of Utah. As he began his climb, he remembered that he had broken his very first rule, and that was to tell someone where he was going. An experienced climber shouldn't forget that rule, but he did. And so Aaron Ralston began his eight-hour, 13-mile climb. At least he thought it was. Turns out to be like Gilligan's Island. A three-hour cruise is going to take longer than he thought. He was going through a very narrow crevasse of sandstone and somehow dislodged an 800-pound boulder that rolled back on his hand and pinned him to the canyon wall. And he could not extricate himself. For five days, 127 hours, he was pinned and no one knew where he was. He'd eaten up all of his supplies, three liters of water and two burritos. And he knew he was going to die. He was going to die unless he did something drastic. And that's what he decided to do. With the only resource he had, a dull pocket knife, he amputated his own right hand. He first of all tied a tourniquet to to stop the blood flow. And then he broke his bones. And then he cut through the remaining flesh and tendons until he got himself free. He still had to repel about a 60-foot sheer cliff to get down to safety, but he did. And his story is truly amazing. The media descended upon him in droves. And everyone, everyone wanted a piece of Aaron Ralston. He became a motivational speaker and, and in the States would receive about $25,000 to speak and internationally up to $37,000 for one lecture. He was on every talk show program, Leno, Letterman, Good Morning America, all the others. Some people criticized him because he made some foolish decisions, and that was true, but no one could deny his bravery and what he did to do some amazing things to give himself freedom. He actually wrote an autobiography. I love the title, Between a Rock and a Hard Place. (laughs) And there's a picture with him with his new prosthesis. Well, the story is quite amazing, and it teaches us many things. One of the things it goes to show you is that you and I have been paying way too much to doctors for surgical procedures we could do ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) But it also shows that sometimes 
things are so desperate in life, you have to take drastic measures to cut off a part of you so that you can save a more important part of you. And that's what Mark chapter 9 is all about. Open your scriptures to Mark chapter 9. First of all, let me say thank you for being here on this holiday weekend. For those of you who are visiting, so glad to have you. We're studying through the Gospel of Mark. And just to give you a little bit of background, we've been in chapter 9 for a couple weeks. And as we read through this section of Scripture, especially as we get down to the end of this chapter, we realize one very important truth, and that is God is serious about sin. He's serious about sin. And whenever Jesus told his disciples that he was going to die and go to the cross, he began to teach them about discipleship and correct their erroneous views while at the same time give them the essence of what discipleship was all about. And so we've already seen in this chapter that he's talked about how serious he is about sin and how important it is for us to honestly follow him. Those who love the Lord hate are to hate evil, the psalmist tells us. God hates sin so much he sent his son to die for our sin. And he hates sin so much that sometimes we have to take drastic measures, he tells us, to eradicate it from our own lives. In talking about discipleship, he's talking about the obligations that you and I have to each other. For instance, back in verse 34, he said that you shouldn't be competing with one another. The disciples were arguing about who was the best. And he says that's not, not the most important thing. You ought to be the servant of everyone else. That's the most important thing. And the servant is greater, greatest than all, greater than everyone. He brought in a small child to illustrate this story and said whoever welcomes this child the very humble child who can't do anything for you, can't increase your position or your wealth or influence. Whoever takes this child in takes me in and takes the one who sent me in. And so discipleship is all about serving others, even those who aren't as great as we are. He also mentioned the fact that we need to make sure that we don't reject others. Notice in verse 38. John said to him, teacher, we saw a man casting out demons, driving out demons, and he wasn't one of us, so I stopped him. (laughs) I would love to know how John said that. Did he say it with pride? Look what I did. Or was it a confession? Lord, after what you just said about receiving a child and not competing with one another, I'm ashamed to say, (laughs) a little while ago I told a man to stop because he wasn't part of us. Either way, Jesus dealt gently with him and said, John, don't stop him. Here's another great principle to live by. Not only should you be a servant to everyone, but you need to understand that if someone is not against us, he's for us. He's driving out demons in my name. He's doing ministry in my name. Why stop that? Even though it's not of our particular stripe or he's not part of our particular group. And I think John was convicted. Like many of us, he was trying to protect his own turf, safeguard his own position. Didn't want anyone else to somehow wiggle in to the position of influence and authority he had. 
So in the end, Jesus is basically saying the real issue is not whether you're part of our group, but whether you're part of Jesus' group, whether you're part of his body, whether you're on his team. And when the essentials of the gospel are still beloved and honored and at the core of your faith, the non-essentials shouldn't drive us to separate, to criticize. In fact, he says in verse 41, notice this, even a person who gives a cup of cold water, any kindness shown, any help given, even as low as giving a cup of water to someone else, a simple gift, a basic illustration, shows that you will not lose your reward. So discipleship is about others, serving them, welcoming them, ministering to them. If we help others, we win a reward we'll never lose. But if we harm others, we'll receive a punishment that never ends. And that's where we come to verse 42. I want to divide our thoughts this morning around two headings. The first is harming others. We've already been talking about it a little little bit in the context. But verse 42 says... If anyone causes one of these little ones, that is, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for him if a large millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. Wow, what a sobering, terrifying statement of our relational responsibility to other people. Not only should you be helping people, accepting and welcoming people, not competing with them, giving them even a cup of cold water to help them on their way, make sure you don't cause someone else to stumble. It's not all about you. Living your Christian life is not just about you. Fulfilling yourself. It's about you blessing and ministering to others. Notice the phrase, these little ones. I suppose it's very natural because the context was talking about little children before and the Greek word was very very particular that it was dealing with a, a young child and Jesus brought the young child in and says, welcome him, you welcome me. But now he's talking about little ones in the faith. Here again, the language in the original is very clear. It's the little ones who believe in me. Often Jesus would talk about the little flock right? I'm reminded of those words in Luke 12, 32. Don't be afraid, little flock. Your father is pleased to give you the kingdom. You're my little ones, Jesus would say. Whoever believes in me is part of my flock. So he's not just talking about children physically now. He's talking about children spiritually in the context, all who serve him. And if we are indifferent to those who love Christ, we are indifferent to Christ. If we belittle those for whom he died, we belittle him. That's how important it is for us to get along with those who are true believers. And then he uses a bit of hyperbole. You know what hyperbole is, don't you? It's exaggeration. Did you know that the Bible exaggerates sometimes? If you believe in crass literalism, I believe everything the Bible says. 
You don't have to interpret it. My friend, you're going to abuse the Bible because you've got to not only understand what the Bible says, but understand what the Bible means by what it says because sometimes the Bible uses figurative language just like you and I do. And part of literary style and speaking emphasis is this idea of hyperbole. There's a little bit of hyperbole here, but there's also a very, very strong message. If you offend someone who believes in me, and maybe the little ones refers to new baby Christians, we are such morons when it comes to baby Christians. We expect them to be as grown up as we are, thinking that we are grown up. And we sometimes ridicule them when they're not walking in the faith like we are walking in the faith. After years of following Christ, if you cause one of the baby Christians to stumble, well, it'd be better for you if a large millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Now, there are two different kinds of millstones in Palestine. Uh, here's a picture of the first one. It's, it's basically, basically a s- small stone used often by women uh, as they were preparing meals. Women in that day as they would prepare the family meal. And so they would take a stone and grind the grain or the flour or whatever it is and prepare a meal. That's a small millstone. Here's a picture of a large millstone. A- and this was used to crush olives or grain and corn. And it was so heavy that it would take a couple men or an animal, sometimes all of those, to push it around in a circle and grind the grain. And Jesus says, it'd be better if one of these large millstones were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Now, you have to understand that this was, in one sense, hyperbolic, and in another sense, it wasn't. Because this is exactly what the Romans used to do, although they didn't use millstones. And Suetonius, the historian from Rome, tells us about uh, Judas the Galilean who was a zealot and was going against uh, the authority of Rome and he was captured. (coughs) And they tied a large object around his neck and he was thrown either into the Mediterranean Sea or the Sea of Galilee. That might have been last week's news. And Jesus said, you know what happened last week? Better for you that that would happen to you than for you to cause one of the little ones to stumble. In another another section of Scripture, he says that it'd be better if you weren't even born than for you to cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. Sin is serious. God takes it seriously, right? I mean, that's the only conclusion you can come to. But then he says, not only is it bad to harm others, I want you to know that in the realm of discipleship, it's very bad to harm yourself. This is verse 43. He says, and here's where Aaron Ralston's story seems to come home to us, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life main than to have two hands and go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. 
It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell. And then here's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 66, the very last chapter of the, uh, the book of Isaiah, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That prophecy of Isaiah comes in the very last chapter. Some people have called Isaiah the little Bible because it has 66 chapters and the Bible has 66 books. And some have even made a connection with those chapters in the different books of the Bible. And if that were true, then the last chapter of Isaiah represents what book in the Bible? The book of the Revelation, where final judgment comes. And this will be a phrase that Jesus picks up on, not only here, but in other places, to talk about hell. It would be better for you to be thrown into the sea, better for you to be maimed, crippled, or lose your eye than to lose your life. Better to lose a member of your body than to lose your life, is what Jesus is saying. Now, he's not suggesting physical mutilation, but rather he is suggesting, he is demanding spiritual mortification. If you read from the authorized King James Bible, the Bible that I grew up studying, you'll read in Colossians chapter three and verse five these words, mortify the members or the deeds of your body. It's repeated in Romans as well. Mortify, what does mortify mean? Put to death, kill it. You're crucified with Christ, but still some of the remnants of that old man lie in you and come out of you, part of the Christian life then is to make sure you don't let sin harm you and it is so serious, take drastic measures. Cut it off. Mortify the deeds of the body. Now, Unfortunately, some Christians have taken this portion of scripture literally. Origen, one of the church fathers, in order to keep himself from sexual sin, actually had himself mutilated. And it was a few years after that that the early church actually made a rule among Christians and had to tell them, don't physically harm yourself, for that goes against the whole creatorial purpose and, and protecting the body and protecting life made in the image of God. This is hyperbole. So don't be a crass literalist. Study the Bible, but find out what it means by what it says. Oh, that's what it says, and that's what I'm going to do. Unfortunate for you. But spiritually speaking, yeah, put sin to death. We need to endure, endure pain to conquer sinful habits. It's worth it to participate in the kingdom of God to make a great sacrifice now. And by the way, it's no accident that Jesus mentions the hand and the foot and the eye. For as the Jews used to say, these are the brokers of sin. These are the avenues of sin, right? The eye sees and thinks and meditates on what it might do that is evil. The hands do the work and the feet take us into places we should not go. The whole totality of life is encapsulated in the eyes and the hands and the feet. 
So whatever part of your spiritual life is keeping you back from honoring God, cut it off. And just like there is a severe punishment if you cause a little one to stumble, understand this, my friend, there's severe punishment if you don't deal with sin in your own life. And it's repeated over and over again that you'll be thrown into, the Greek word is Gehenna. When we take our trips to Israel, we walk through the Valley of Hinnon. And the Valley of Hinnon, actually the city of Jerusalem, is, is uh, surrounded by ravines. There's one to the west, one to the east, and the Cheesemakers Ravine that goes right through the city. Well, the Valley of Hinnon is on the east, separating the city of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And it was in the Valley of Hinnon during the Old Testament that Ahaz, one of the wicked kings, sacrificed children in the Valley of Hinnon. In fact, things got so bad that Israel was practicing the very things that God had had brought the Israel people into Israel to get rid of the nations, the very things that the nations were practicing. Now Israel was doing just as bad, if not worse, in the valley of Hinnon. Manasseh, another king, did the same thing. Sacrificed their children in the pagan fires. Can you imagine that? And so the valley of Hinnon was cursed, Josiah. King Josiah said it is a cursed place, and after he cursed it, it became the city refuge dump. And that's where all the garbage and filth of the city would be taken, and they would burn it. And it was constantly burning. You would see the smoke fold, uh, smoldering from the valley of Hinnon in the southern part, the tip of the city of Jerusalem. And when Jesus wanted to talk about hell and the punishment that those who reject him would would endure, he pointed to Gehenna and said, this is punishment. Talk about an object lesson. It smelled bad. You know what a garbage dump is like, right? I mean, they're better today than they were back then, by the way. But if you went to a garbage dump back in that day, you know what you would find? Fire burning and maggots crawling all over whatever they could to eat on and feed on. What does it say? The worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so this stood for a place of punishment and Jesus said, you are in danger of Losing your soul if you don't deal with sin in your own life. It's not that by dealing with sin you earn salvation. It's that if you're truly saved, you prove it. You show it. You bear the fruit by hating sin. Let those who love the Lord hate sin and depart from it. There can be no reconciliation between the Christian and sin. No treaty, no peace accord. How tragic it is if you cause someone else to sin. How tragic it is if you allow sin in your own heart. 
So we're faced basically with two alternatives. You kill the sin or sin kills you. It's just that simple. You kill the sin or sin kills you. And the battle for purity is life long. Now, as we're reading through the scripture here, we might tend to think that some of these commands that are given to us are disconnected. They're isolated from one another. For instance, he says in verse 49, everyone will be salted by fire. Now, what does that mean? Well, after talking about the fires of hell, he's now talking about a different type of fire. The fires of hell are fires of condemnation. Now he's talking about the fires of purification. And he puts together salt and fire. Everyone will be salted with fire. Again, the Jew would have understood that. Because in the Old Testament sacrifice, what two elements were always added to the sacrifice in the temple? Salt and fire. They would salt the sacrifice. It was called in Numbers 18, the the covenant of salt. And Leviticus chapter 2 demands that every sacrifice be salted. And then it was burned with fire. And this whole idea of being salted with fire means that our lives are to be sacrifices. And when we commit ourselves to be a sacrifice for God, we will pass through the fires of purification. So you have the fires of condemnation in Gehenna, and now the fires of purification. Talking about the trials that you and I face. Isn't it true that every believer will be persecuted? Right? 2 Timothy chapter 3, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, you were appointed to these trials. 1 Peter chapter 4 says, don't be surprised by the fiery trials which are to test you as though some strange thing has happened to you. And it always amazes me when people come to me for counsel and they're going through some difficult time and they start out with, why me? And I often share with them 1 Peter 4, why not you? This isn't odd, this isn't strange. And by the way, I'm a far better counselor than I am Christian because when it happens to me, I usually say, why me? The Lord says, remember what you said to that person in your office last week? Yeah, I do. Now it's time to say it to yourself. When we commit ourselves as sacrifice, what New Testament reference in Romans chapter 12, verse one, tells us that we are to present our Bodies as a living sacrifice. That's what it's talking about here. Holy, acceptable to God. That's your reasonable response to him. That's your reasonable act of service. And when you do that, you will be salted with fire if you're a sacrifice. The fiery trials are going to come your way, and my friend, there's no avoiding it. It was Bonhoeffer who said that suffering is the badge of discipleship. And he said that in his excellent book, The Cost of Discipleship, which he wrote just a few, I think, months, finished a few months before he was executed by the Nazis. 
You remember this hymn? When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flames will not hurt thee. I only design, what's the rest of it? Thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Don't be surprised when you give your life as a sacrifice to Jesus Christ that you are salted with fire. Everyone, verse 49, will be salted with fire. So we emerge by faith through the testing, purified and better for it. But then verse 50, he says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Have salt among yourselves. And now he goes from Christian sacrifice to Christian virtue. This brings us back to the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? When Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. So now he's talking about Christian character. The Christian character that is produced by the fiery trials. Everyone will be salted by fire, and it's good for you to be salty. Salt is good. The Jews had a maxim. The world cannot survive without salt. It was the most important commodity in, in their world because it affected their food. It made food flavorful. It kept it from decaying. And that's exactly what Jesus said Christians should do in this world. I want you to bring flavor to this dead world, and I want you, I want you to keep this rotten Roman Empire from decaying anymore. By the way, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, you are the salt of the world. Perhaps a better rendering of the original language is you and you alone are the salt of the world. In other words, if Christians don't do it, there's no hope for this world. If we don't live Christ-like, there is no hope for this world. You, South Church, and you alone. That is Christians, only Christians, can bring flavor and delay decay in a corrupt society like our own. Don't allow your view of a corrupt society to cause you to be callous toward Christian or toward unbelievers. They're victims of the enemy. But understand, this world is not a friend to grace to help us on to God. So unless we remain faithful to Christ, that is, maintain a pure and godly life, unless we are faithful through the fiery trials and come out purified, We'll have no preserving influence, no moral, spiritual influence on this wicked world around us. Someone as well said, if we fall into the same sinful patterns of life as those who are without Christ, we will never reach them for Christ. So be salty. If we succumb to the normal sinful Worldview and lifestyles of those around us, which so many Christians have, and we're all drawn to it like a magnet. If we succumb to that, then we'll 
have no opportunity to reach those who are outside of Christ around us. But if, on the other hand, we live for Christ, a godly, faithful life, we will, sh we will shine like lights in a dark world. We'll be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And people will be drawn to the light like insects. And they'll say, what do you have that I don't? So the conclusion, look at verse 50. Be at peace with each other. You say, boy, that's, again, somewhat disconnected, isn't it? No, it isn't. Because harmony with each other reflects the peace we have with God and influences our witness in the world. Jesus was always talking about, they will know you are Christians by your what? Love. The love and harmony you have with other believers will be a powerful testimony to a lost and dying world so fragmented in their own communities. And yet, when the world looks at the church, what do they see? Infighting? Arguing? Competition for position? Hey, you're not part of our group. You're a little child. Why well, welcome you? You can benefit me. None. That's what the world sees. And Jesus said it's time to get serious about sin. Not offending others. <clears throat> and making sure you eliminate sin in your own life. A pure life like this distinguishes us from the backbiting and backscratching that goes on everywhere around us. So, here are a few things for us to remember. God is serious about sin, so don't cause others to stumble. God is serious about sin, so don't treat it casually in your own life. Get serious, get desperate. Take drastic measures to cut it off. Be willing to suffer so that your life can grow in glory and stay salty. Because in the end, there are two fires. There is the fire of destruction and there is the fire of purification. Now, which one would you rather endure? You've got a choice. There was an army chaplain who had come to a group, I think it was in World War II, and one of the men who was kind of a rough guy said to him, I think it was a sergeant, he said, Chaplain, do you believe in hell? And the chaplain says, no, I don't. The sergeant said, after he spit on the ground, well, we don't need you. <laughs> what do you mean you don't? We I'm not needed here. I was sent here. and Just because I don't believe in hell, you say I'm not needed? He says, yeah, that's right. Because he said, if there is no hell, then we want to live any way we want. And if there is a hell, we don't want you deceiving us. Either way, we're better off without you. <laughs> and any religion that does not talk about how God seriously punishes sin and does not offer a way of salvation through the cross. My friend, this world is better without it.
Let's pray. Lord, help us this day to get serious about sin in our own life. And